Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. And Lou and I were having breakfast this morning and looking at the uh, ISM number, and our eyes popped out of our heads. So we're going to be real excited to get to our guests. Before I do that, I just wanted to chat with Lou for a minute. Lou, you and I were both astonished at the number. I almost uh, choked on my bacon. <laughs> so, so you know what? Let me do the uh, postscript for last week's show, and let's skip the news because we got really hot news here. So everybody, stick around and listen to it. It's um, an amazing number, and uh, we're gonna. And Tim is also going to tell us why. So we'll know next time. Not to put you on the spot, Tim. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, last week we had Paul Oster, CEO of Better Qualified, a credit monitoring agency, also known as Nation's Credit Repairman. He discusses how to uh, achieve good business credit and maintain that, and the mistakes that businesses make and how to avoid credit mistakes so that you'll be able to do better business, more profitable with less credit issues. So tune into that. Uh, it was uh, very insightful. And uh, next week, uh, actually on the 6th this coming Friday, uh, we are going to be at Manufacturing Day in Branchburg, New Jersey at the Marriott Hotel. And their NJIT, NJMEP, are going to be um, celebrating uh, Manufacturing Day. Guest speakers, uh, corporate heads, uh, think provide, thought providers, and also a couple of government officials. And we are going to be doing interviewing there. I hope to be interviewing some young folk that uh, will be at the event and get their intake on the fact that uh, how young people should be looking for manufacturing as a uh, career path. So on that note, Tim? And we are here with Tim Fiore, who is the committee chair for the ISM's manufacturing report on business. And as I said at the top of the show, eye-popping numbers. So we're anxious to hear Mr. Fiore's overview of this great report. Tim, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Okay, thanks, Tim, and thanks, Lou. Glad to be here. And uh, what a, yeah, what a month it was in September. Now, September historically is one of the strong manufacturing months anyway. It follows the summer period, and it's also a prelude. It, it sets up the close of the fiscal year for many manufacturing companies. But, you know, a number close to 61 was uh, unexpected, to say the least. So if you look at it, I mean, there's there's really three elements. There's two elements that drove this number. The uh, The first one was a new order index up 4.3 points uh, to 64.6, which is a really strong order intake uh, month. And also the supplier delivery number up 7.3 points to 64.4. Now, uh, recall that a higher number of supplier deliveries means that suppliers are struggling with keeping up with demand. So those are those are driving the top side of it, offset by a decrease in inventories, raw material inventories by three, so uh, from 55 to 52. So if you take the inventory number, offset it by the new order number, 
it becomes a story of supplier deliveries, meaning that okay. uh, what what would have happened for this month if uh, there was not any hurricanes? So the other kind of color I want to throw in is that uh, I did a sampling of we have many, many comments from the business survey committee every month. And I counted up the first couple of pages of comments. It equaled somewhere around 70 to 80 comments. There were 41 hurricane-related comments out of those 70-some-odd total. So it was really the September was the month of hurricane discussions. And the majority of it, surprisingly, there was a lot of comments around new order entry activity resulting from the hurricanes, which intuitively I wouldn't have thought would have occurred so quickly, but there there was a lot of comments coming in that we had a lot of orders received uh, post-Harvey. And then, of course, there was a bunch of stuff around supply assurance, uh, allocations, supply chain price issues that are going to develop over the next uh, today all the way through for the next four to five months. So it was really a story about hurricanes. So, you know, kind of in the to, to get it back to a non-hurricane month, uh, you know, I would say we're probably, if we didn't have a hurricane, we were probably somewhere in the 57 to 59 and a half range. So I would, and, and there's no science behind this, and this is Tim's opinion, so I want to caveat that. But I think if you didn't have a hurricane, it's probably where it would be. Which is See, he's, really sounding, he's sounding just like Brad Holcomb, never forecast, never take the <laughs> never risk. Forecast. All right, how about this, how about, how about this one, uh, Tim? Do you think this is going to help the automotive industry anytime soon with a million cars lost? Well, you know, I would have thought so until I read something that maybe came out a week ago or so. You know, Ford and GM are both furloughing out of their uh, mid-sized factories. So I, I guess I'm not that surprised. I, oh, I think actually GM was also furloughing out of their SUV factories. But, you know, we, ha- we had the conversation last month around, you know, replacing all those cars, and there's no doubt right. that they need to be done soon. And, you know, there's somewhere around 100 to 110 days of inventory on a dealer's lots at any given point in time. So that's three-plus months' worth of inventory. you, you got to figure right. that a bunch of that inventory has been moved down into the hurricane areas. So why, why isn't the factories replenishing that inventory? You know, maybe they're trying to optimize working capital. Maybe there's model switches going on. Maybe, uh, I mean, they're saying consumer demand is moving more to SUVs and the midsize Camrys and uh, Tauruses and all that aren't as strong anymore. Other dynamics going on, but I, there's no doubt that the, the hurricanes are going to provide some benefit to the transportation sector. Well, considering they were uh, expecting a lower automotive sales for the end of this year and next year, so this will um, bolster those numbers up. Yes, I, I agree. Tim, are there any other sectors that you think you'll see an uptick in because of the hurricane in manufacturing? Well, you know, like I said, I think as I've been thinking through this thing, what what is this going to mean longer term? I mean, we're we're 18 months into generally a 30 to 34 a month uh, expansion cycle. And the, the ramp of our expansion since August of last year uh, is almost equal to the ramp of expansion that we had back in the 03 time frame when, uh, you know, the good times really rolled back in the early 2000s uh, before we had, you know, financial uh, issues that kind of kept that expansion going. So, you know, it, it, it looks to be 
be really strong. I, you know, I think we still have another year of expansion to go here. Uh, and it doesn't mean, you know, 60 numbers or 58 numbers or 56 numbers. It could be 51, 52 numbers. But I think overall we're in a pretty good position. I, I, but the thing that's starting to concern me now, and this is one of the benefits, I think, of the uh, report on business being done by supply management people, is that at what point do supplier deliveries and low raw materials start to impact production? Because if production gets impacted, so won't employment. And, uh, and that, that's probably my biggest concern here. For the 64.4 supplier delivery number, that means that suppliers are really struggling, whether it's to produce the items or whether it's to get them delivered to the point of use. I think it's a combination of both of those. The, the, the delivery to point of use issues should be eliminated over the next you know, month or two maximum as a result of the hurricanes. So then we get back down to can suppliers really produce the quantity of materials that are needed by their customers' production schedules? And, and at what point do we get to where suppliers not being able to deliver constraint to production output, which then impacts uh, further investment and employment? Uh, Tony, uh, Tim, let me ask you uh, a question about um, the fact that I'm now beginning to hear little rumblings of the R word, recession, sometime late 18, 19. Do you see that in these numbers at all or in your little globe? Well, I can't tell from any of this. Uh, Nothing uh, from the comments. Or, and, and the numbers that we've produced, uh, you know, even the lead times, the buying policy stuff around lead times for capital equipment, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're not they're not moving very much. You know, they they jumped from 140. Well, they, let's see, back in June they were 146, and now they're at 142. They indicate that they're kind of declining, but you know, that's probably what a one and a half percent change. So I don't know that that's a big significant mm-hmm. issue. Right, but it does right. get us out to the 30 to 34 month time frame that. Uh, is generally our normal, uh, you know, expansion cycle. So, yeah, it's it's very possible. But then, you know, you have the other elements coming in, Lou, now. I mean, we're finally going to have some fiscal policy here that uh, may be a benefit to the business community. I mean, we haven't haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, and that will be offset by the monetary policy of the Fed selling the bonds back into the markets. So mm-hmm. how do those factor into the overall economic growth of the U.S.? And then, you know, they're talking about uh, repatriation of profits at a lower tax rate, which, uh, at least on the surface, should help somewhat. Uh, I tend to think that uh, companies are borrowing against those profits offshore anyway, but they're probably not borrowing at one-for-one. One. So bringing that money back into the U.S. should uh, should be of benefit, too. So those are all offsetting issues. Europe may go into an absolute sit if all that $500 billion were to come back. Yeah, that, yeah, that's got to that's got to provide the central bank central bankers some concern, huh? I would think. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Would, uh, but uh, it'll certainly it would certainly help this country and uh, certainly help the corporations who evaded taxes in the first place. <laughs> Ooh, did I say evade? <laughs> I meant avoid. <laughs> you mean they optimize their tax structures? Yes, right. That's that's so, been spoken like a true money and economic guy. <laughs> so there was some concern. Uh, There's, there, there may be some concern popping out here around uh, commodity, raw commodity prices, and I, I see that there's there looks to be 
I'm softening around, you know, the key, the key metals, the iron ores, the coppers, the uh, nickels and things. And a lot of that tends to be driven by uh, Chinese demand, which is almost 40, I think it's 40 something percent of the total demand for that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's disturbing. I think uh, I'd like to see, the, you know, the raw material, those types of commodities stay at least constant to slightly growing. When you see them declining, it's a bit of a concern. Some of it has to do with uh, monetary policy and the value of the dollar and things. But uh, I, I, I would like to see true demand continue to be, you know, positive so that uh, take that, that variable out of the equation. I did see a, a bulletin this morning uh, from uh, Bloomberg that the iron ore prices over the last 45 days in, in uh, global number has uh, dropped by 20%. Uh, that certainly will make a huge impact on uh, on China. Yes, yeah, I, I was watching the same thing, and, and scrap steel prices uh, haven't budged much. Uh, you know, all of that kind of uh, says that there's going to be some adjustment here on the steel cost at some point in the future, and whether it finds us. I mean, the steel prices for hot roll coil are still at what I would consider to be nominal range, you know, six six thirty or something. Uh, for a coil of uh, HRC, so you, know, you, you, know, you see that iron ore is dropping. You see this, that scrap steel is around three sixteen, three twenty for a cash price. I mean, I'd, lo- I'd like to, I'd like to see steel stay fairly constant. I, I was surprised that we entered this time of the year with steel prices being so strong, because you know now's the time of year that all the buying people are sitting down and providing forecasts for steel to their financial community. Right. So, uh, you know, so the steel guys are kind of, as you know. The steel guys are saying we, we want to increase our prices or we want to decrease our prices. That's all being fed into the company's business models. And then uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll proceed on a price variance basis starting in January. So there's some indications that steel might be a little soft. I mean, the, all the comments that we had from the the uh, business council was that steel still strong prices, up in price, hot roll coil, uh, stainless, uh, you know, scrap still being reported as being up in price. So mm-hmm. interesting, no uh, no cold rolled steel, which is the primary automotive and uh, uh, white goods stuff. Right, right. Yeah. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Tim, Tim, with the with the pressure on suppliers to supply, are imports uh, booming or expected to boom here? I don't know what you know percentage of total supply to the U.S. is imports, but it's probably fairly significant. Uh, you know, I think I saw that number. I, you know, I think it, it's single digit. I think. Um, surprisingly, I, I'm not sure if that counts the uh, the imports coming out of NAFTA either. But you know, it might be mm-hmm. North American North, North American imports might be in the single digits. But you know, our, our import number has been kind of boring. Nothing is really. I mean, it's still expanding at at some amount of rate. It's kind of been that way for a while. We. We issued the, uh, the, the semi-annual survey back in springtime, and we asked our respondents how much of an impact uh, they, they see on imports because of the, the new administration's policy. And pretty much they all came back and said none. So, uh, I mean, I think that's another one of the stories that's developing here. So the last three or so months, we haven't really had a lot of comments from the uh, community around uh, regulation, tariffs, tax policy it's kind of fallen off the radar screen as you know we'll get to it when it shows up uh you know now with this new effort 
to to roll out a new tax policy. It'll be interesting to see you know how that drives into our comments coming from the business community. So let me ask you about that question. Is this a tax policy, a tax reform, or a tax break issue that we're now discussing? Yeah, I think it's all of it, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I was on uh, Detroit Radio this morning, uh, and uh, we had this discussion. And uh, personally, I think we're talking about a tax, a tax rate decrease issue. And I, I, I don't think that it's anything more than that. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be. I haven't had the time to really dig into it, but uh, yeah, you, you could be right. I mean, there's a lot of things that have been left out of the initial release that you think would would impact, you know, the net result of what it all means. Right. So uh, then, it's almost like headline course, stuff. And, and then, of course, what, what is said might not always be what's done. Right. Without right. making any inferences. Yes. We yeah. try, well, we yeah, try yeah. not to go politic, politically. It'll be interesting to see how that develops because I understand that the top tax rate back in the Bill Clinton era was 91%. He lowered it to 71%. You saw the economy boom because of that lowering. Um, Now you're seeing it come down uh, from 71% uh, in subsequent years to uh, 41%. And now Trump is talking about taking it down further, simplifying tax brackets. Uh, all, every time that happens, two things are the result. The U.S. government seems to collect more money than it was under the previous tax structure, and people have more money to spend, so the economy takes a jump upward. So I'm not sure what you call it, but I think the move is probably good for the economy overall. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that, that it should be good for the economy as long as they follow through with the things that they say they're going to follow through with. And, uh, but there's no assurances of that as demonstrated over the first eight, eight nine months of this administration. So okay, just is there anything else? Yeah, so it's just to, to make a comment on that. So as is what, what is normal in these kind of environments, a lot of it is based on growth projections. And that, right. uh, I, although I think they're saying that this all balances, it won't add to the deficit, it won't decrease from the deficit. But the fact is, is that they need growth in order to fund this. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I think what we've been saying for you know the last 18 months is that manufacturing is contributing, and we're we're growing and we're helping. So, uh, you know, if that's what's happening, we're paying more tax dollars in, which is all positive to. Uh, for the economy of the U.S., and I'm, you know, I'm happy to be a part of that. But, you know, it's also interesting. The other day, uh, President Trump gave a speech to uh, NAM, uh, National Association of Manufacturers, talking about um, some of the tax issues. He didn't. He spoke for an hour and a half, but I, there was not a whole lot of tax talk. Uh, and one of the things that I picked up on, and I remember hearing last week or two weeks ago, that the tax bracket for the lowest uh, income group, tax would be at a maximum of 10%. And the Republicans wanted uh, 12%. And he said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. And uh, sure enough, uh, in his speech uh, at NAM on uh, uh, the, on Friday, he did say 12. He did not say 10. And uh, so that's the kind of thing that I was talking about earlier, that what is said is not necessarily what's done. 
Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I would think that would be a hard sell to lower tax on everybody but raise it on the ones that barely have an income. Yeah. Well, on the yeah, positive we'll, side, we'll see how like compromise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah like a, I mean, what it may indicate is that there is some element of compromise, which is what governments should be all about, right? Well, that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but by the way, I, I misspoke. It was Reagan who took it from 91% to 71%. Clinton took it from 71% to 50%. So now it's uh, Trump's turn to take it down if he can pull it off. Tim, is there, other than the fact that we have an eye-popping uh, 60.8 number for the ISM report this month, was there anything in the report that was a surprise, or was the whole report a surprise? Uh, no, you know, I, I, I just have a couple of other comments here. So, I mean, I, I really like the customer inventories number uh, being so low. I think that that, but that number is so low, that means that we've got lots of built-up potential that uh, we still have a, a need to satisfy. So, really good about that. The, the export number of 57, 2.5 points up, was a bit surprising, especially when the business survey committee reported that our chemical products industry sector was the number one exporter for the period. So, uh, you know, you, what you can see happening here is as the hurricanes were blowing in, the companies were exporting their product as quickly as they could to get it offshore so that it wouldn't be mm-hmm. landlocked. So interesting dynamic. And I think, you know, just to add to the validity of the, of the quality of the information that I get, so, you know, production, we had 13 industries that were, expanding out of 18 for the period and uh, our petroleum and coal products which texas makes up i think i said last month 32 or 33 percent of the total output for petroleum and coal products they were reported as a decrease in production in september which makes a lot of sense they were down for anywhere from one to two weeks so so it just goes to show that uh, you know we get a lot of data that comes in and it all gets summed and you know it's it's solid and it's 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 fact based and it's, it's decision making quality. So I want to hand it to the business community, business com, uh, survey committee for doing a great job in reporting this stuff. And let them continue doing a great job and keeping that numbers sixty plus, which I know can't happen. <laughs> but but let's enjoy the party while we can. Yeah? Yes, I agree. <laughs> Well, Tim, thanks for being with us again. We, I'm sorry, if you have another comment, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, did, did we talk about? I mean, at some point, my head starts to spin on all this. Do we? Do we talk about prices? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think we did, sir. Okay. All right. So, boy, I mean, 18 of 18 wow. industry sectors all reporting increases in prices, and. I mean, it's, it spreads across the entire gamut. And, uh, you know, the, the comment that I added to this, our electronic components are still an issue. Uh, we have wood product stuff is coming up. Obviously, the chemical area will be an issue. Uh, you know, but I, I think the, the comment here is that there was a lot of stuff that came in from everybody about, oh, geez, you know, it's, the prices are going to be up, prices are going to be up, and a lot of it related to the hurricane. But to the, they don't really understand the extent of it yet, and nor could they. I mean, there's no simple algorithm for them to say, oh, well, because of this, it's going to mean that. So I think, you know, we, we've had a couple of weeks post-hurricane to, to start to settle that stuff in with the fact there's allocations out there. It's going to be difficult. Uh, I think the month of uh, October, there's going to be, you know, a lot of price discussions. What I'm hoping 
is that these price discussions don't lead towards supplier delivery issues, which then lead towards raw material issues, which then lead towards production issues. So that's uh, that's that's my biggest concern. It's interesting about that point about prices. That is, that's now the longest-running trend in uh, that you have on your report, that 19 months of uh, upticks. You're right. Correct. Yes, yeah, it's been uh, prices have been expanding for 19 months, almost going on two years. Hmm. And as far as uh, I can tell, Tim, the uh, <clears throat> manufacturers have not been able to pass the price increases on downstream, either to the companies who are buying their products or the consumers, because we're not seeing any significant inflation that the Fed is reacting to, unless it begins to happen now in October and November, which will stimulate the Fed to uptick the uh, interest rate by a quarter point or so in December. Well, you know, every business I've ever worked for, uh, the board expected that the company would expand equivalent to GDP. So, you know, when GDP was 1.9%, then that's not as difficult as expanding at 3.1, right? So, what, so you know, what's happening now? Are, we, are they finally able to recover? And any time, every business I've been in, when raw material prices, prices of stuff that we pay for go up, it equates into improved margins on our business. So, uh, so price growth at the purchasing level is very positive from a company's profitability level. And, you know, given that the, uh, they've revised their GDP forecast for Q2 to 3.1, up from, you know, 3 or, or uh, 2.9, you know, way up from where we started this year, we're still, we're still showing our, our running rate here is running at a 4, 4.4% GDP. I mean, it's, it's got to mean that people are recovering some of this plus some. And, uh, you know, earnings reports are coming out soon and, It'll be interesting to see what uh, what people start reporting about uh, Q3 and as far as earnings and profitability. And it, it seems an interesting dynamic, Tim, that when uh, supplier prices are going up, it's good news for uh, the businesses and manufacturers. Can you explain that a little bit in detail? Well, I think what it is is it's a compounding effect, right? When uh, when your raw material goes up two percent, do you try to pass two percent on for your prices to your customer, or do you pass 03 percent? It uh, depends mm-hmm. on how good the cus- the customer's buyer is on the other side. So they do right. they do that. <laughs> Most of the businesses I've seen do it. I mean, I, I used I used to get clobbered when I paid price increases, but then the company profitability was up thirty percent. You know, and and uh, they they found a way to pass it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How how terrible we are. Uh, but that's uh, that's <clears throat> capitalism for you. Well, a lot of it has to do with timing, too. So this is an important time of the year right now because people are setting sure. their budgets and price levels for delivery and product in January, February. So mm-hmm. like I said, I mean, the mo- most manufacturing companies, they're, they're forecasting what prices will be for their purchased materials right now for next year. Right. And, uh, right. and that, that will set the expectations for savings and for margin expansion. Okay. Um, I'm ready to hear what's going to go on in our last quarter. Uh, I know it's premature, but uh, we'll just have to sit and wait. Yep, sounds good, guys. Tim, thanks for being with us again. Okay, you back a lot, Tim. You take care. Speak to you soon. You too. Bye-bye. And we've been speaking with Tim Fiore, who is the committee chair of the Institute for Supply Management's 
manufacturing report on business, which you can find on their website at instituteforsupplymanagement.org. So feel free to look that one up along with Tony Nieves' report, which is the non-manufacturing report. Both of those dovetail together. Both of them can be found on that website. And we'll be right back after this. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Elevate your career and stay ahead of the curve with EISM. Brought to you by the Institute for Supply Management. EISM is the first on-the-go lifestyle-compatible learning initiative in the industry. It features hyper-short 15-minute modules and guided learning courses that can be completed in as few as three weeks, just right for you or your team. It's the world's largest one-stop online learning shop for supply management. Register today at ismelearning.org. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it. And it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're back, and we're, we are with Chris Keel, who is with Armada Corporate Intelligence. He's also the chief economist for FMA International, which is, uh, well, what is FMA, Chris? Give me, refresh my brain. Bootstart me here. Exactly. It's Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International. So it predominantly deals with companies that are in sort of light manufacturing, the fabrication part, um, although members are also larger machine tool makers, and we have members that are large steel and metal operations, so it's a pretty diverse group, but primarily for the small to mid-sized firm. uh, Just out of curiosity, do you know their uh, membership numbers? It varies a little depending on whether you're talking about the subscribers to things like the Fabricator or actual members. Um, The range is from probably 3,000 to 15,000, depending on how you want to categorize them. That's a typical response coming from an economist. (laughs) Well, of course it does. We We always respond in a range. You know, it's like, I'm not going to give you a specific number. Horrors. <laughs> I have to. I have to admit that uh, this morning I used your term, and I don't think I gave you credit for it on a show. 
And I think I said all economists and anything they say with unless. Of course, of course. You know, it's the it's the economist mantra. We start and end every paragraph with ceteris paribus. All things being equal, you know, I mean, any minute now we're going to get some new data, and and it will completely change everything we think. So, how come you didn't go into meteorology and become a weatherman? Well, because the two of us are linked. I mean, meteorologists and economists are birds of a feather, and we each have each other to to look to for inspiration. And here I thought, and here I thought it was more more that you didn't look as good as some of the meteorologists meteorologists that they have on TV nowadays. Yeah, well, you know, I, we won't go there. But the good news is, is that both meteorologists and economists are more accurate than pollsters these days. So. Ah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, pollsters is a down industry. After this past election. (laughs) So what's the CMI look like, uh, Chris? Well, the CMI is looking pretty strong. It is paralleling the PMI in a lot of respects. And for those who've been suffering through my descriptions for a few months in a row, you will note that one of the concerns we had and still has is that we've had a lot of ups and downs. We'll have one month that's up, the next month is down. And it's always due to the same couple of factors. It's dollar collections, so the money that credit managers were getting in from those who owe them. And it's slow pays. People who are, they have 30-day terms or 60-day terms or whatever, and they need a little more time. So they'll come back to the credit manager and say, can I have another couple of weeks, a month? Credit managers are a little reluctant to do that. But if it's a good customer, they accommodate and then hope that that company catches up. For the last several months, they have been. You know, one month they're asking for more time, then they catch up. Then they ask for more time, and they catch up. So the latest numbers have them catching up again, and it is hopeful that we're looking at a longer-term trend, that there won't be such demand for extended terms going forward. We see pretty good numbers on sales. Overall, just like the PMI, we look at a scale that has 50 as the break-even point. If you're above 50, you're growing. If you're below 50, you're not. Right now, for the CMI, we're looking at numbers that are in the mid-50s, pretty comfortable. If you look at the favorable factors like sales and applications, those are way up in the 60s. But even the unfavorables like bankruptcies and accounts after collection and all that, they're still above 50, not by much. But it's it's at least in positive territory, even if it's hanging by a thread. Do you want the unfavorables to be above 50 in your reporting? We would like them all to be above 50. Uh, if you get the unfavorables up there, it means that you have fewer disputes, fewer bankruptcies, fewer accounts out for collection, fewer slow pays. Right now, the numbers are okay. Uh, We're looking at at least above 50, in some cases 51, 52. A couple of them are still high 40s, which is in contraction, but it's not an emergency situation. It's just that when you're that close to that break-even point, all it takes is a bad month or two, and you start to get some real pressure Credit managers, obviously, nobody wants to be in, in the collection process or in disputes or any of that sort of stuff. Those are all signals that 
business hasn't been going the way you anticipated. And at this point, we're seeing good growth numbers when it comes to the favorables. Sales are up. Applications are up. Amount of money uh, offered in credit is up. Those are all really good signs for the future. And now if we can just kind of deal with some of the leftover pain, that would be even better. Uh, Chris, I'd like to ask you um, a little bit off topic. We'll, we'll get back onto topic, but I'm just going to take a side side trip here for a minute. On my manufacturing side of my knowledge base with All Metals and Forge Group, uh, and I've been doing that for more than five decades. And at one time, we used to get business in, and uh, we didn't even get written purchase orders. You know, they say, oh, "Here's mm-hmm. a verbal PO number." And then over the over the years, uh, it got to be that it was more complex and more uh, uh, verbiage. And now we're at a point where we are. Uh, getting orders in from the internet and they tell you if you want to see our terms and conditions click this link and you mm-hmm. come to and you come to a book <laughs> you know 20 30 50 page book that was clearly written by one of your brethren uh, attorney folks <laughs> and right. they 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 create this document that is not understandable not meant to be understandable, and uh, they stick in all kinds of gotchas. And one of the gotchas that uh, I've seen over the last year or two, and we catch them all, and we do have a process on how to handle terms and conditions against orders where they're not um, in favor of our position. And one of them is that they now stick in um, XYZ Corporation, uh, usual terms, uh, credit terms is 60 days or mm-hmm. 90 days or 60 days after the 28th of the month, which makes it about 120 days. And it just gets on, going on and on and on. It gets really absurd. So we do wind up, uh, irrespective of whatever credit terms we give them and that we are uh, affording them a certain amount of flexibility, their credit terms, because of the way they're written and who wrote them, actually their terms and credit terms are the ones that apply. So when you go to try and collect money, well, did you read our terms and conditions? And uh, so we finally, after having some unfortunate experiences, we now have a whole process about reading terms and conditions. And we have a methodology that we use to refute uh, their terms and conditions, which would hold up in almost any uh, business court environment if it ever got that far. Are are you seeing any of the – and here's the question. I, had a, I was wondering when you were going to get that. Well, there was a question. We're on bated breath here, kind of like there's, there's a point to this. I just know there is. So. <laughs> there is one. I, I, and I was hoping that I would get to the point myself intellectually. So here's my point. Are you seeing much of this going on? In, during, in, well, you know, I'll tell you what. The, the thing that, that is, is constantly, constantly, constantly told people is do not treat 
any of these legal documents like it's fluff that you do whenever the cell phone updates and said, you know, you have agreed to let Bill Gates move into your spare room if you accept this update. <laughs> the, the terms and conditions are, are critical because what you've got are essentially two parties that are somewhat adversarial. You know, you've got the person who has asked for credit. You've got the person who's granting credit. At the end of the day, they sort of have differing ideas of what should happen. You know, the person who is offering the credit obviously wants to get paid. The person who has sought the credit is willing to do that, but things come up, and now they're going to struggle to pay, and, and they're looking for wiggle room, which is why you have all of these issues around slow pays and collection and bankruptcies and the rest. So the moral of that story is, is do exactly what you do. You know, Read through this and understand that both parties are doing their best to protect themselves. And if you are not paying attention, then the person who is working with you, who is paying attention, is going to have an advantage. Now, the majority of companies that do a lot of credit work, you know, it, it doesn't serve them very well to try to bamboozle the people they work with, particularly if you're the one asking for credit, because obviously if you have done something untoward, good luck next time you want credit. Um, so there's a certain amount of, of those who expect the relationship with continuity are going to play as, as close to the rules as they can. The other thing that's useful to know is that there are standards that have been applied by organizations like the National Association for Credit Management, for whom I am the economist. They have detailed the way these things should be carried out. And organizations that don't play by the rules will find themselves essentially blackballed. You know, the NACM, if if asked, someone will say, what about what do you know about these guys? You know, are they good? And they say, no, they're not. Um, they don't play by the rules, and they're going to try to gotcha, and it would be in our recommendation that you don't do business with them. Um, so a big part of NACM's work is collection. Um, they are the ones that people turn to to say, look, I've gotten shafted by these people. I don't have the resources to chase them. Will you do that for me because I'm a member? And they say, but of course, that is what we are for. We will chase them for you. And because of that, they have a, a system in place that helps everybody stay you know, on the up and up. Some of the mistakes are accidental, but some of them are quite deliberate, and, and they're not people you really want to do business with. Many of these companies that I'm referring to are some of the Fortune 500 companies. They don't name oh, yeah. names oh, yeah. trouble. I'm not naming <laughs> No, anybody. I mean, yeah, no, it's, you're, you're exactly right because there are a lot of companies that use their power and their size to, to extract things from people that others wouldn't. And, you know, it's like, again, we're not going to name names, but everybody has had experiences with large companies that use their leverage and basically say, yeah, we're not – we're not the easiest people to work with, and we're going to take advantage of you at every opportunity, but do you want that cash flow or not? And a lot of companies are like, yeah, okay, I know you're going to play dirty with me, but I need the cash flow, and yeah, whatever. Um, but it still doesn't mean that they're necessarily very popular. And when other credit managers get together, there's a lot of finger-pointing saying, you know, you guys don't play by the rules. We had a, an incident, and this is short, and then we can get back talking about money. Uh, we had an incident, incident several years ago, a public corporation, 
uh, owed a six-figure dollar amount and uh, was not paying their bills. Not responsive, not uh, mm-hmm. helpful, not answering calls, uh, not to the point where uh, our CFO tried to reach out to the president of the company and of that division and mm-hmm. also couldn't, couldn't make any contact. And we wound up going to uh, the New York Stock Exchange and blew the whistle on them there. Mm-hmm. And we got paid in a week. Yeah. No, com- I mean, a lot no of conversation, no nothing. Yeah. A lot of times it really is leverage. And again, that's when you go back to the associations whose job it is to apply rules and regulations and sanity to this. You know, should that ever happen to you again or anybody else? the first place I would contact would be the National Association for Credit Management because they're, that's also what they do, is they will intercede on, on companies' behalf to somebody who has behaved that way because it doesn't take long for other credit managers to ruin the reputation of a company that, that doesn't pay. Um, either that or I can introduce you to Guido. Um, it's entirely <laughs> Is Guido from Kansas? <laughs> He he won't say. Um, you know, <laughs> he's from Jersey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he he won't say. You know, it's just it's just you hear a lot of forget about it, and then you just move on. So, so do you have to be a member uh, to use the services of NAC? No, you really don't. You really don't. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, don't be surprised if they ask you if you have credit managers and if they would like to join. But it's it's one of the things where it's a it's an organization, professional group, and offers a lot of services. If you want them to actually help you collect, there are some fees involved, as there would be in anything. But most of the advice is as free as it can be, and you'll be put in touch with lots of folks that, that have been there and done that and have ideas. Well, I think that's a real helpful piece of information for our listeners. Uh, their website is nacm.org? Dot com. Yeah, it's, it's, dot com. Uh, I think it's dot com. Let me look. I work for these people. How am I supposed to know this? Um, <laughs> so I think <laughs> that's, a te- that's a technical question. You know, hey, that, was a, that was a, a John McLaughlin gotcha yeah. question. I know. nacm.org, you're correct. Um, yeah. Or people can simply reach out to me, and I'll be more than happy to. And how, and how would they reach out to you? Well, they can send me an email, and this I can actually remember. Um, it is c h r i s dot k u e h l. So it's my first name, last name, at armadaci dot com, and that's a r m a d a c i dot com. Stands for Armada Corporate Intelligence. And before you even say it, yes, I know that's an oxymoron. So, <laughs> well, I get you. Hope, I hope you get flooded with emails. Chris, <laughs> Me too. Uh, Chris, you work with the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International, which has tool and die makers in it and lots of other right. companies. Lou and I were talking just this morning over breakfast about tool and die makers and whether or not they're going to see the impact of robotic automation. What's your thought in that area? Are they going to start to see robots that can read a CAD drawing and create the parts of somebody hand-tooling it? 
You know, I think you will see some of that coming into the business because you're you're dealing a lot with the kind of the outbreak of accretive manufacturing. Instead of taking a big sheet of metal and subtracting what you want, you've got the 3D printer technology that's making inroads. What is happening in manufacturing in general is that, to a certain extent, the days of robots just taking over a function are kind of in the past because everything that could have been simplified to that degree really has been done. Now you're seeing an awful lot of a sort of joint effort between robot and person, technology and person. It's sort of augmenting each other. So I don't see a situation where lots and lots of people in the tool and die business could put out a business by a robot, but I see them working with robots, doing more cooperative activity, maybe fewer entry-level positions than might have been the case in the past. But you're sort of going into the next stage of robotics, which is assist. Um, the machines will be more or less like partners. Um, and there's still sectors in manufacturing and other parts of the economy where just raw replacement is still undergoing development. But increasingly, it's kind of what's happened in the service sector where Computers and that sort of thing have not continued to take over jobs completely, but now they're a tool, and and people have to learn how to use all of that technology, where in the past maybe some individual just did it for them. Hmm, it's interesting that uh, we're beginning to see more and more of that as well, and, of course, it's part of the right. solution to the skills gap. Uh, right. Try to automate as much as you can. Uh, Absolutely. And I, I, I think it's just going to continue to go that way as uh, we look into the future. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's also forcing more attention to what are we training people to do. Uh, you're working now on the assumption that there'll be radical changes in almost everything we do every four to five years, You know, certainly every 10 years. So people learn a skill. In the old days, I mean, people could learn a skill and use it for 40, 50 years. Now you're sort of reinventing yourself every four or five, ten years and in order to stay current. And it's it's an imposition, but you know, lifetime learning is now, you know, not something for the retired who want to study Picasso. It is for the machinist who says, Well, I can't stop them, so I gotta learn to work with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just reading some statements by uh, Jack Ma, who's the founder of Alibaba. And his mm-hmm. comments are, stop training kids for manufacturing, train them for engineering, programming, because the traditional manufacturing is not going to be there in terms of jobs in the future, because so much of it will be roboticized. Uh, well, I, I mean, guess that's he, makes a, he makes a point, but I'm not sure that I agree with it completely, because when you get a statement like that, it's almost like, Learn engineering in a vacuum. You know, I'm an engineer. What, what do you do? I engineer. Engineer what? <laughs> are you are you are you a mechanical engineer? Or are you a chemical engineer? Are you a civil engineer? What kind of engineer are you? What are you building? You know, I mean, everything an engineer does is specific to where they work and what it is that they're developing. The same thing with somebody who's writing code or developing software. Is this just for random? You know, it's like, hey, I have this code. What does it do? I don't know. It's a code. It's like, no, it's a code for a purpose. And if you don't understand the manufacturing that you're coding for, 
Well, you know, it's not going to, I mean, if your area of expertise is space invaders, well, I would rather you stayed away from the laser cutter. You know, so it's, I think what's going to happen is that the average person in manufacturing is going to be wearing several hats. They're going to be part mechanic. They're going to be part engineer. They're going to be part computer programmer. And even today, people are learning an awful lot about how to use the machines. But at the end of the day, they still have to know what the process is, what it is that they're trying to do, what the problem is they're trying to solve. You know, computers are really good at telling you and doing what you tell them to do, but somebody has to be smart enough to tell them to do something. Right. Very true. Very true. Uh, You know, the next thing that we look at, Chris, in terms of uh, the economy with all these numbers looking very favorable at the moment, and you almost hate to ask the question, you know, how long could this possibly last? Oh, no, don't ask that question. (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll give you the standard economist answer. It depends. Um, now, that's what we're, <laughs> yeah. What we're dealing with right now, because you hear a certain number of economists who are confidently predicting the next recession and so on and so forth. <laughs> I have one problem with that kind of economist. We call them stopwatch economists because a stopwatch is right twice a day. You just have to know when to ask. And if you <laughs> predict a recession every single month, every single year, you are eventually going to be right but you're going to have missed, you know, 20 years of boom in the meantime. We're in a very, very slow recovery. We really never got out of this last recession. We did not have the big spike back up that we frequently do. Lots of recessions look like a B. You go down in a hurry, you come back in a hurry, or maybe it's a U. You go down in a hurry, linger, then come back. We've been in a checkmark recession for quite a while where we went down in a hurry, and now we're taking our sweet time coming back. We've only been growing at about 2.5, maybe 2.6. That's sustainable. We can do 2.5 growth for many, many years, if not decades. It's not fast enough to trigger inflation. It's not slow enough to throw an economy into recession. It's just kind of average. Um, It's kind of like we're avoiding the heart attack of a second recession, In return, we have a chronic disease that's going to make us feel like crap for 20 years, but not quite dead. So (laughs) we can, we can sustain that. It's not very satisfying. It is, it's difficult to grow fast at that pace. Getting to 3%, 3 3.5%, 4% would be a stretch right now. I don't think that we're set up to do that at this point, but by the same token, I don't think we're falling back to, 1.2% growth. As a matter of fact, and this is why economists are so unpopular, Houston and Florida and Puerto Rico economists are sort of secretly doing little happy dances going, yes, yes, it was a tragedy. I really feel sorry for those people. But think of the rebuilding. And and for the next (laughs) couple of quarters, we're going to see a lot of expansion because all that stuff has to be replaced. I mean, if you're going to get a hurricane, and it's going to hit someplace that boosts your economy. Well, Houston's a good enough place to start, and Florida's right behind. The place that's likely to get left is Puerto Rico. But, you know, you hit the 50% of the U.S. refineries. Those are going to get rebuilt and fast. 
not not even to mention the million cars that were lost in Texas and oh, Louisiana. Yeah. The, the oh, yeah. uh, I mean, auto every, manufacturers every, must be jumping yeah. up and down. Absolutely. Used car salesmen particularly, but you know, you're gonna see you already had a labor shortage when it came to construction. It is now acute everywhere in the country because uh, anyone with right. that skill is moving to Texas or Florida. So you're going to have a an impact on the economy for at least a year, uh, and and that's assuming we don't get any more storms. We still have two more months of hurricane season. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, hopefully we don't take uh, any landfalls for any of those. Yeah, exactly. That, that would be incredibly painful to the uh, economy. I'm not sure we want to withstand another one financially. But... So no, uh, not at all. You don't. You, you don't believe uh, President Trump's prediction that we're going to be at 4.0 GDP this year? No, I don't. Not at all. Uh, we're not going to we're anywhere close to it. And we never really were on track to grow that fast because the things that have to happen to grow at that pace just haven't been happening. And it's and it's not for lack of trying. It's just that, you know, we're a big economy, and this is like turning a, an open ocean ship. I mean, it just takes a long time. We have not overcome the issues of labor shortage. We have not overcome the issues that have been stalling the economy when it comes to productivity. The good news, and that's what's been pushing us up at least close to 3 because we hit 3% in the second quarter, probably won't in the third quarter because of the hurricanes, but we may be back to it in the fourth quarter. Our exports have gone up, and and this has been due in part to the dollar weakening a little bit. More importantly, the countries that we sell to are in better shape than they have been. So Europe is recovering. Japan just released the best numbers they've had in a decade. That's important to us because what we export is machinery, 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 and a little bit of food. You know, we don't sell <laughs> consumer goods. We buy consumer goods, but we sell airplanes and road building equipment and locomotives, and we build the machines the Chinese use to make the stuff that goes to Walmart. I mean, so as those countries recover, then it's good for us. We can't really help them recover, but once they do, then all of a sudden they start buying our stuff, and our economy looks a lot healthier. Well, that's uh, good information to kind of wrap this up, unless you've got some other comments you want to share with our listeners, Chris. We always appreciate it. No, I think think right now my general assessment of the economy going into the latter part of this year is that we're doing okay. Um, I think we'll see a little bit of a boomlet uh, due to the damage repair, which we'll see in the fourth quarter. The really fun thing would be if some of that carried over into 2018. The caveat about 2018 is it's an election year, and anything that we were hoping to accomplish this year when it came to politics, if it gets pushed into next year, absolutely nothing is going to happen. Everyone is going to be campaigning fighting primary battles, all that kind of stuff. So most of whatever progress we've had will disappear, and we just have to hope for 2019. So my advice to all the listeners is go get a DVR so it will be possible to watch a TV program without throwing something at the TV and and just, just, you know, hang in there. Uh, It's only only a year. Uh, Chris, 
your, your show would not be a show unless you ended it with your word. <laughs> but I have so many. <laughs> I know, but there's only one that's really so meaningful. <laughs> and, and let me let me help you. Unless. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, ceteris paribus. We 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 want to be fancy ass and talk about Latin here, you know. So <laughs> it makes it makes us sound makes us sound erudite and 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 knowledgeable, even though everybody knows that's not true. So. Well, our our listeners, we, they'll take it from us that you're a bright guy. You've got a great sense of humor. We enjoy having you on our show, and you do give us some really great valuable information and everyone I'm just going to remind them about the nacm.org yes you don't have yes. to, you don't have to be a member there you can get help you can get insight you can help them uh get you out of uh, certain financial difficulties and uh I've already written it down myself it's going to be photocopied as soon as I get off the show very good all right, Chris. I'll warn them. I'll warn them that you're calling. You know, <laughs> Chris, thank, thank you, you very gentlemen. much. Thank All you. Bye bye. And we've been speaking with Chris Keel, who is the economist with the FMA. He's also an economist with the NACM.org. He's with Armada Corporate Intelligence. Busy guy. Always comes on our show and shares a lot of great information. Be sure to tune in uh, next week. Lou, what do we have next week? Know what we have next week? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we've got a show next week. We do have a show. I, I, we're uh, just for just to show that we know something about what we're doing. We're booked out 16 weeks now. So, uh, I, but I, that doesn't mean I know anything. Our associate producer, uh, Linda, Linda Hopler, she uh, does a fine job for us, and she she knows all that stuff. And our engineer, uh, Craig Revere who uh, keeps this online unless the cable breaks or something of that nature. Uh, But uh, we'll be talking to you next week and uh, we'll send everybody notices about what's on and uh, look forward to the show next week. Yeah. We'll see if we can't get our 16 week schedule up online at uh, manufacturing talk radio, mfgtalkradio.com. You can find all of our shows there. You can find some great news articles that come out every day there. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're just all over the place. So have a great time. And thanks for listening once again to, whoops, Lou's got, wait, hang up. Hang up. I got to bring up Manufacturing Day, October 6th. Oh, that's right. It's year number four, I think. I don't know. I've lost track. Six or seven. We've been there three or four times. It's going to be all over the country. They're anticipating numbers like 50,000 people will be involved in 50 states, including Puerto Rico, well, maybe not Puerto Rico this year. That may be uh, so I don't think they're going to be involved. But Manufacturing Day is very important for you to be involved in, to be aware of, and uh, to see some of the things that we're doing in our country to help manufacturing uh, become stable and growing and avoid a lot of the pitfalls pitfalls and uh, potholes. So I just want to throw that in for my two cents. And if anybody, uh, the first person who tells us uh, what year it is for Manufacturing Talk Radio, for, I'm sorry, Manufacturing Day, send us an email, info at mfgtalkradio.com. We'll send you a coffee mug. And thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast 
each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.